Strategy and Insider, exploring future trends and their impacts. Welcome to the eighth episode of our Strategy and Insider podcast. My name is Thomas Solbach. I'm a partner at Strategy and and the host of this season. I'm really very happy that every one of you keeps listening to our conversations and we're truly grateful for the continued interest and the positive feedback that we're getting throughout the various platforms and also in social media. And as most of you know, this season is all about the future of health. And already uh, we have uh, published uh, several episodes covering a broad variety of perspectives, including from a bioinformatician, a physician, a health entrepreneur, an investor, uh, various pharma executives, and also government representation and more. I'm uh, very honored today uh, to have a new guest. And in um, uh, times of COVID-19 pandemic, where we have a global challenge, every one of us, we obviously respect the measures being implemented by many governments and uh, record today's session in a remote setting with me personally sitting at home in my living room and having told my family to please keep quiet and ideally in the garden. And I'm not feeling too guilty because it's sunny outside. But nonetheless, I'm very much looking forward to today's discussion because we have one of Germany's most popular medical doctors as our guest today. Welcome, Dr. Johannes Wimmer. Hi, how are you guys? Johannes works at the uh, Psycho Trauma Centrum, a research hub of the military hospital in Berlin currently, and his research focuses on digital health solutions with regard to public health and psychiatric care. His overall profession um, focus lies on the digitization of medicine and healthcare more broadly, as well as the improvement of the patient-clinician communication. Initially, Johannes studied medicine in Germany and the US and did his doctorate in 2011. And two years later, in 2013, he started his own YouTube channel as Dr. Johannes and has become famous as one of Germany's leading TV doctors. By now, Johannes hosts his own daily tele show as well as a regular YouTube format for a major German insurance company. And in both formats, Johannes explains basic medical principles, answers questions uh, around the most common diseases, but also gives some sort of advice on how to stay healthy. And on top of that, he's a very well-received guest in uh, talk shows, events, and also media interviews. This is why, but not only, I'm very honored that you squeezed this in and agreed uh, to be our guest today for our Strategy and Insider podcast. And as already mentioned, you're quite a well-known public figure in Germany and other regions. But nevertheless, I would really like to get to know you a little better before we dive into our topics around and beyond COVID-19. Let me start with your residency uh, that uh, basically uh, happened working in the US, uh, be it in New York and Boston, in, in South Africa and Australia and also in China. What insights when traveling around the world with kind of medicine in the back uh, did you bring home and uh, what has proven most successful and useful for your daily work as a physician and researcher here back in Germany? <laughs> Well, um, it's not too simple to put everything, you know, I experienced in these fantastic places now into a few sentences, but there was a strong incentive or reason why I wanted to go abroad and see how other doctors and other healthcare systems work. So basically, I was always looking for the best medicine in the world. And if you look at the stations where I was, especially the US, 
that's why I'm so heartbroken right now to see basically like my favorite healthcare system from a research perspective mm. being so downtrodden by the disease and so overwhelmed. I always wanted to figure out who's doing the best medicine. And when I was in New York and Boston, um, technically and scientifically, it was like, it is the gold standard. But working in South Africa and driving with the ambulance um, into the townships at night and doing basic medical care um, was a very different experience. And in China, it was a mix out of both. So basically, um, my overall learning is that medicine is a very uh, humane and human interaction thing. So it's all about how you interact with your patient on a one-to-one -one basis. It doesn't have to be necessarily um, in the same room and you don't have to be live or like physically in the same room as your patient. But the, the funny thing is that you know, if we look back 100 years and we look on medicine, how it has been then, um, we sometimes wonder like how on earth could they even function <laughs> they didn't know antibiotics they didn't know you know certain surgical procedures uh, it was like uh, the medieval ages well if we look back and we think of good doctors back then it, it was the doctors who were there for their patients and who uh, basically held their hand even when they couldn't do anything and that's something i learned especially in south africa and in china sometimes you have a lack of resources you can't do everything you want to do and then it's very vital to be there as a person, as a human, uh, mm. for another human who's suffering. And I think that's something we see today as well. Uh, we are pushed to our limits. We can't go any further. And if we look 100 years ahead, maybe they will smile at us as well and say, well, they, they were still, uh, you know, treading on cancer and couldn't even handle a single virus. So in the end, what I'm saying is that medicine is happening in the moment you're performing medicine. And that's one-to-one -one or in a group, it's interaction and it's something which is very human in the way you, you work with other humans and it's it's about the basic mm. human need and that's um, being taken care of and not about the highest ending technological fancy pill which might offer some promises which it doesn't fulfill in the future. Yeah, and uh, you, you remind me of something uh, from the very beginning of our podcast season when when I was having the chance to talk to Andreas Vicky, who is the head oncologist in Basel, he was actually saying when I asked him, how do you cope with yeah, interacting with seriously ill, if not deadly ill, cancer patients day by day? And w w what's the conversation like? He was referring to sometimes it's it's just being there for them and, and just having a discussion with what happened the last few weeks and what they ate just prior to this coming to him um and it was not not so much about any procedures and new drugs to be taken it was more kind of taking care of of that moment uh, he was referring to that's precisely it. people want to be taken seriously and that's a matter of fact the biggest problem i see in the highly technologized healthcare system. Physicians hide behind their technology hmm. and they offer all kinds of medications, procedures, etc. Um, and they get paid for these quite well and they don't get paid for, that's a whole different story, but they don't get paid for success but for performance, um, which I think is a totally wrong incentive. Yeah, But it's in the end, if you suffer yourself, I mean, even as a physician, sometimes you are sick yourself and you wonder, you know, like, what do I need now? And it's, it's not like the biggest promises. Of course, you take them along, and it's nice to have a good surgical outcome, but you need a human you can trust. And that's the magic that's happening, be it at 3 a.m. in the ER or um, on the street because somebody felt remotely ill. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm thriving for. And, and my main aim is, due to the lack of resources we have anyway, and there's not enough doctors and there's not enough time. I mean, that's it's pretty obvious that uh, having 3.5 minutes on average on a patient is not enough. Yeah. How can you put this human interaction in some 
perspective, like say 60, 70, 80% of this to a digital platform in videos remotely or in remote interaction, but I'm pretty sure that we'll talk about that later. Yeah, and that is basically also a, a good link um, uh, to my second uh, question that I wanted to uh, to dig into. As And I mentioned that at the beginning, you're a very successful with your TV and also your online formats and in cooperation with the Technica Krankenkasse um, for everyone outside of Germany. This is one of the major insurance companies in Germany. You have been producing more than 230 YouTube videos, reaching more than 2 million views and uh, basically translating that um, highly technical medicine basically into layman language so everyone can understand. So where does your impulse to go public with your medical expertise basically come from and, and what are the most important messages you, you want to convey by doing so and going public in, into YouTube and, and also TV and uh, other uh, online formats? Thomas, uh, thank you very much. A lot of questions at once. Uh, let me start uh, simply. Um, it's about giving people power you know the, the proper new terms are patient centricity patient empowerment um but you know if, if i start by myself and um, when i started medical school i'm not from a, a physician's family so i don't have any doctors running in my family no friends were back then um uh, at the parent side who had been doctors so i was totally lost um, i didn't understand mm -hmm. a single word and in germany uh, the big problem is that um, you have two languages you have medical german and you have classical German. Um, if you go to your doctor in England uh, or in the States and you have diarrhea, then you will say, I have diarrhea. Mm -hmm. If you go to the doctor in Germany and you say, you have diarrhea, as a patient, you will say, I, I have runny tummy uh, or my belly aches. Um, that's basically yeah. what you say in German, literally translated. So already at the symptom level and at the diagnosis and, and treatment level, you always have different terms, which is making it very difficult because as a doctor, you write a fully different report and use fully different words than the words you use with your patients. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge, huge uh, obstacle you have to overcome in any patient interaction. So I felt in, in being in contact with the patients that they were unsatisfied. I was unsatisfied because I never had enough time to explain. So I started basically filming videos about the most common questions you would ask your doctor or the most common problems you run into patient-doctor communication. And in the overall end, what it's all about is enhancing the, the patient's knowledge level um, specifically for his problem and motivating him to make a proper decision. And the decision in medicine, it can be pro or against. It doesn't matter to me if the patient says, well, I will keep on uh, eating unhealthily, drinking alcohol and smoking, as long as he understands the consequences. So if the patient properly understands, then he can also make an informed consent, which is, you know, everybody's always talking about, but the informed consents are usually not informed. So, you know, if we dig into um, when you talk to your patient before getting general anesthesia or getting surgery. Also there, you always have a lack of time. Uh, your patient can never fully understand what's going on mm. because yes, they didn't study medicine. Even as a doctor, you are so compromised emotionally um, when you're really sick that you don't you know, really care or you don't understand fully what's going on. So it's about enhancing the knowledge and then helping people to get some kind of a motivation to make a proper decision and that's for patients on the one side and and the public health aspect and that's more like for the daily tv show which is running right now at 11 a.m it's you know i'm not talking to patients i'm talking to the general public to people yeah. who are sitting at home drinking their coffee and watching an entertaining medical show so there it's a different kind of knowledge you want to transfer because it's much broader than if you're in a close patient interaction 
And uh, I can only imagine, I mean, this has an impact on the patient themselves or people, if healthy still, right? And they can do some something to prevent diseases. But it might also have an impact on the patient-physician interaction the next day. So what's the reaction that you're getting from the medical society here from your doctor colleagues? Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful question, Thomas, because it's um, it's probably the most painful question that, uh, you, could, you could possibly ask. Lucky I found um, it. Yeah? The thing is that medicine is a very like a very strict red taped normed environment. Uh, mm-hmm. You're not allowed to break out or to stand out. Whoever tries to stand out is usually cut down. So it's it's really a um, very classical way of doing things. Um, and all of a sudden, there's this young resident coming along and uh, bringing fire to the people. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, um, if, if you think back of the uh, old Greek saga, then you want to uh, chain him to a stone wall and have, uh, I think it's the eagle, uh, nipping <laughs> away his liver. Yeah? You know, that's, that's, that's what most people wanted to do in the beginning. Because they felt that I'm intruding their professional and maybe even private um, integrity, yeah. which I can fully understand. The thing is, they felt so comfortable in their professional setting and talking in, you know, non-understandable words that, of course, they were pissed. But overall, in in the long run, what physicians understood is that when you start interacting and communicating with patients before they come to your office and they start writing down how they feel and they come into your clinic with a certain goal, not just, you know, like totally um, unorganized and unorientated, all of a sudden, you can work so much better. You, you have a higher impact and you get to your goal. Your patient is, is more satisfied. So um, from a very confrontational kind of way, uh, we really developed solutions which are now implied into hospital settings. And, and that's what the research is all about as well. You, you have to prove scientifically that it's working. If you just you know run along and say, well, it's working, but I don't have to prove it, um, then it wouldn't be proper medicine. But actually, we see that it's working quite well. And I recently came across a study from the Charité in Berlin. Thomas, ich muss dich einmal unterbrechen. Ich gehe einmal runter. Ähm, ja, ja, ja. Bleib okay. gerne, entweder in der Line. Ich bin dann in ein paar Minuten wieder da. Ich muss Take aber einmal runtergehen. Ja, ja, ja. Danke. Take Bis gleich. Okay. Bis gleich. Yeah, so uh, we had to uh, adapt a little um, as Johannes had uh, to take his uh, almost very newly born child with him. Um, he's having uh, his his newborn now on, on his arms and walking through the room. So um, uh, that's the matter of reality on, on how things work these days in, in these very special times. Probably reverting back to, to the conversation that we just had and also diving a little into the COVID-19 discussion and of course, I know you are not a virologist here, but still, uh, I well remember you being one of the uh, first healthcare experts who explicitly warned about the threats of the COVID-19 uh, yeah, that might be uh, posed on people. And you did do so also in a discussion um, with uh, the German uh, federal health minister, Jens Spahn. And while you were urging at the beginning, in the first conversation, the minister, uh, above all, stressed that there was no reason to panic for the time being and you struck uh, kind of a completely different note there. And two weeks later, the minister himself had to correct his words in in the same TV show. And uh, unfortunately, things became true. What, from your perspective, could have uh, the government done differently to prepare for, for this pandemic at an early stage? Or was there no other choice of how we went? Um, actually, <laughs> it's almost difficult to talk about that certain talk show and, and what happened afterwards, because it was 
if you say something nobody wants to hear, it's uh, quite interesting how people react. Mm. Not only the health minister, but also media. Uh, they mm. took up his words and, and were confronting me with it. But the, the thing is that in the end, you know, of course you can say you're smarter after all. I don't want to be a smart ass, but mm. you know, the reason why I said what I said, and uh, quoting and, and explaining how this uh, coronavirus, which is usually just a common, very you know, annoying uh, runny nose, um, is, is actually killing us. And um, mm. that was the, the main reason why I, I, I took this up was because I worked in China and I know how the Chinese healthcare system works because I did a lot of consultation there um, uh, on digitization, etc. Mm -hmm. And when When I saw these numbers and I saw a lockdown with 50 million people um, in a country like China, which is not fully obsessed with, you know, promoting a disease getting out of hand, mm. and the, the virus certainly doesn't, you know, walk down the Silk Road um, and taking six months to come to us, but it takes a single airplane, mm -hmm. that it's quite severe. And, and we had the first few cases, just a handful, like four or five cases in Bavaria, and, and people were so... <laughs> So so happy and, and full of themselves that they say, well, we found patient zero and everything will be good. I think that's the, the major problem you see in medicine as well, um, that people are too self-righteous and think that they know all and they have mm. everything under control. And nature just has to snip and tell us mm. that, that we don't. Yeah. What we should have done differently is um, we should have taken these first cases in, in Bavaria very seriously, which we didn't. Uh, locally, yes, but not on, on a major scale. There shouldn't have been uh, something like the huge carnival season in Germany where everybody's traveling mm -hmm. to North Rhine-Westphalia and celebrating, getting drunk and having a fantastic time, which, you know, nothing against carnival, but the problem is people mingle like crazy. And these are the super events which might trigger something going into a very wrong direction. Um, but it's unpopular. So, so as a politician, canceling carnival will cost you oh, yeah. tremendous votes if, if afterwards... You know, uh, nothing happens. Um, mm. I always try to stress the image. Um, uh, who's the hero? Is, is the hero the firefighter who's, who's uh, extinguishing the fire of a burning house? Or is the hero the guy who's installing these little uh, beepy thingies, you know, like the smoke warners or whatever you call yeah. them in English? Um, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> we all know who the hero <laughs> the answer is. is clear. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty obvious. Uh, and that's the same with politics. Uh, you don't want to do something which will cost you votes. And if in the end, it, you even destroy the evidence that it was necessary to do it. But luckily, from a full, you know, just from a political perspective, luckily you can actually see in other countries how you can perform so much better. And right now, Germany isn't bad. You know, it's, it's, I would say that Germany is probably the, my most favorite country to be in right now in this crisis. Yeah. Because the numbers are quite stable and we have resources. Yeah. It was a little bit too late. Um, we could have prevented further damage and we could have been there so much more for our partners um, like France, Spain, and certainly Italy. In a way, we are there right now, but I think we could have shared more capacity if we had reacted earlier. Yeah, thanks for, for sharing that uh, kind of thinking and backgrounds. And rather than looking back, basically looking a bit into the future, um, uh, knowing that COVID-19 is obviously a, a virus that needs to mutate regularly in, in order to change and survive, essentially. And therefore, we, we might face a pandemic uh, um, for an extended time and uh, very hard to predict, obviously, how long this will continue. But uh, current measures that we're seeing to contain the virus, how do you think personally this is a realistic scenario for how long, given that we need to strike a fine balance between health measures and containment measures on the one hand and economy uh, on the other hand of the balance? Um, 
you know, like so many other questions, I, I can I can state a personal opinion, but I, I don't yeah. have, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm the expert in, in, in saying what you could actually apply reading an article in The Economist about um, how much, you know, how much is a life worth uh, is, yeah. is certainly very interesting. Um, and that's something I always try to break it down to a personal level. So um, if I look at my cousin who's running a little business with um, 20 employees, and um, certainly he's he's worried about his parents, my aunt and uncle, who are certainly in the risk group just because of them being beyond 70. But he's also afraid that his business might go bust due yep. to the reason that he doesn't, you know, he's not able to work anymore. And the fine balance all of a sudden becomes reality when you are, um, you know, not in a position or in a job where, you know, your, your salary is guaranteed or might even be, you know, just turned down a little but um, the problem is if, if you are looking at your personal and your family existence and a certain risk of your life the life or, or burden to your parents or anyone around you most people i think will decide towards okay let's take the risks and and see that we keep going financially economically if you look to brazil that's what the people say that you know i don't have a ch people on the street like the mini jobbers what they say is I don't have a choice. If, if I don't work, my, my family will starve. If I work, yeah. I at least take the chances um, that we yeah. will get along. And looking at those personal cases uh, also makes us understand, and that's also what, what I'm reading into the current situation, who is basically an expert who can predict for sure anything here. Uh, I think the new normal is that that no one really can, uh, but uh, almost everyone is, is somehow affected by the situation, be it uh, in the family, through through economic potential downsides, uh, or be it any people actually affected by the by the virus and, and need to cope with that from a health perspective. What we are constantly, not constantly, but increasingly hearing and seeing is that people are advised to seek a doctor's advice more and more via telephone or, or digital solutions. And me personally, I've done so myself since then. How do you think our German healthcare system, and probably also compared to the others that you have seen in the US, how do you think we are um, in terms of being capable of remote diagnosing or prescribing or, or home delivery of treatments? Uh, I think that the capability we have or the possibilities we have to work fully remotely is so much bigger than what, what we anticipate and certainly light years ahead of what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was working in China, um, I was working in wards. Like the whole level of a hospital was just there to do telemedicine. I was seeing uh, and visiting clinics with 16,000 outpatients per day oh. and treating uh, multiple uh, just by remote, you know, like telemedicine. Wow. It's tremendous. Um, and if you look at companies in England and Switzerland, uh, who do uh, like remote medicine? Certainly, they right now, and it's it's also very responsible that they only um, apply to certain you know like health uh, issues like uh, um, erectile dysfunction or contraception, etc., where you, you don't have to touch and see the patient, where you would mm -hmm. just talk to the patient anyway, also in your doctor's office. Um, but in these cases, you see that the algorithm of the computer uh, of the you know like the company's algorithm. It's filtering so perfectly like the patients out and asking the questions. They have to answer the questions before they even talk to a doctor. A, a doctor can treat, I would say, eight to nine fold as many patients as he would in his daily clinic. 
And that's tremendous because the algorithm tells you, well, um, in this case, he answered all these questions perfectly fine. Everything is fine. He has already uh, received a subscription from us. Um, no new issues have arisen. You know, it's all good. That's so much more complete and, and also connecting to prior data than any doctor will do in his office when he's starting to cram around in his paper files. And, you know, it's also about uh, medicine today is not about treating you at this very moment. It's also looking back on the data you have, uh, have been performing or, or provided and looking into f possible future data. Yeah. For that, you have to have an algorithm or software which actually acknowledges this data. And that's just so important to do it and, and also to take the level of stress off medical uh, staff. Because, you know, that's why I'm always saying um, nobody would watch a real medical television show because uh, who would want to see a doctor sitting five hours uh, at their desk at the computer and documenting <laughs> that's the thing you know like the whole digitization is so important not only in the patient doctor interaction and we did huge studies tremendous outcomes in hamburg where i worked uh, um, for instance with um, people getting a, a cell phone with a vpn connection to our server um, sending us uh, a photo of the chronic uh, wound which you know sometimes takes more than a year to heal And they did a photo of this wound every week and sent it to us. And we looked at the photos and we only ordered the patients in when we thought we need to see them. They never get a new appointment. We told yeah. them, you know, you just have to send us a photo of your leg or, you know, wherever the wound is every week. And we will contact you when we need you, not the other way around. Because the problem is if you give somebody the next appointment in six weeks, it can be five weeks too late or it's totally unnecessary. You know, and by performing this, We de-stuffed de or de-cramped or whatever. We basically, we got rid of 33% unnecessary visits <laughs> in our outpatient clinic. That's tremendous. And that's, that's saving real money. And that's what, what insurances forget. But, you know, sometimes it needs uh, something like uh, this, this pandemia or pandemic to help people transform. Yeah, and transformation yeah, frequently happens in crisis times to, to a big amount. Huh? And probably you, you came also across the uh, latest development of Amazon called Amazon Transcribe Medical, where they use something like an Amazon Alexa and put that between a patient and a physician and just listening into this conversation and transcribing automatically the dialogue that happens around uh, diagnosis, around treatment choices and decisions, and translates that automatically into an EHR record, uh, and not only generating data electronically that you can read into, but also taking out, if I remember correctly, something in the range of 90% of documentation time, because the doctor just needs to do a quality and sense check of the EHR and not type everything him or herself into the system. No, but the problem is uh, the possibilities and the, as you said, the effects you can you can apply um, are tremendous. The problem is, do you want Amazon to listening to your very personal, um, you know, interaction with your doctor? And that's where I think that you know we need solutions um, run by reliable sources. And if you will, um, having my data on German servers as a German citizen mm -hmm. and as an English citizen in, in the UK rather than everything in the US. I mean, I, I fully understand these worries. Yeah. The main problem is and will be you cannot offer something which is just 80%. You know, all these EHR, like electronic health records, which are offered now by insurances, etc. what they say is that the patient can decide what you as a doctor should see, you know, like a cupboard with various drawers. If a patient comes to me and he tells me, well, you know, um, here's my electronic health record, but I only want you to see 80%, but I'm embarrassed about the rest 20%. 
I won't treat that patient comfortably because the problem is that usually it's about these 20% yeah, yeah, uh, which yeah, are vital, you know, which are about certain diseases, about certain behaviors, like uh, is the patient taking his medicine or not? I would never feel comfortable treating a patient if I don't get the full possibility or the full um, insight that they actually are. Yeah. So that's something people have to understand. Um, you know, it's, it, documentation only works if you have access to 100%. Otherwise, we are fully thrown back to incomplete patient folders based on paper. Yeah. And uh, there, there is no level of compromise here, I can hear. And and also with regard to Amazon, I'm, I mean, I'm totally with you. Reliable resources and sources uh, of utmost importance uh, still Technically, things are possible and eventually will happen somewhere. And we need to be sure as uh, Europeans and Germans and German citizens, what kind of our filters and rules and standards are that we want to apply to it. Uh, um, technically, things are possible these days. Yeah, and, and you have to decide it you know, when you're feeling good. The problem is once you feel sick, you wouldn't believe what people send me on Instagram, mm. Facebook. They even post it to the wall is that, for the public. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, you know, once you're desperate because nobody is, you know, taking your, your illness seriously yeah. or you feel that, you know, you're not getting the proper help, then you do anything, you know, the last straw theory, you do anything that there is. You have to decide in, in, in normal times and good times um, on how you want to be treated when you're sick. It's the same with the, with the pandemic right now. Um, you know, I always like to stress the old biblical image of uh, Noah and his ark. In English, yeah. it's arch, the huge wooden yeah. ship. You know, uh, when did Noah build his arch? Before the rain. And right now it's raining heavily, yeah. and, and we are up to our knees in, in, in water, and we are trying to assemble wood for, for a boat. Very true. It's, it, that's too late. Yeah. You have to be the guy who's thinking one step ahead of the devil. It, it's very unglamorous, I'll, I'll give you that. And, and politically, you don't win many votes with that, but um, maybe in the future it will change. And the wood that you refer to, uh, we could also translate into uh, data and, and infrastructure and, and also digital means of that, at least parts of the wood. Absolutely. To what extent is medicine and we as uh, people in, in society paying for medicine, paying for healthcare and, and using it finally, uh, what's our level of dependency from technology? I mean, also there, uh, certain measures need to be uh, kept in mind, uh, but what's the level of technology and how do you see that kicking in into our everyday life, especially if we talk about prevention uh, these days? Yeah. Well, I think there's various aspects to it. Um, one which is answering your question, I think, pretty precisely is that um, we're so depending on data and on technology that, especially right now in the, in the pandemic, um, they're still blackmailing uh, towards hospitals where they hijack their servers and try to, you know, like get ransom for um, for releasing the data again. Um, so that's what you know criminals do. They they exploit these situations. Yeah. So that gives you like, a certain perspective. The other is that I think we we don't even fully understand the possibility of the data. And uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, like uh, what will people a uh, hundred years ahead will think of us? You know, if we look back and, and we look at, at physicians not washing their hands between patients and how Zemmelweis was basically like expelled from the medical community because they thought he was crazy saying that, you know, you, you take something which you can't see from one patient to the other and that's why they die. Um, I think that's the same. We, we will have to stand up to that and have to answer our, our you know, like great, great grandchildren why we didn't exploit the full um, possibilities of, of data because I'm pretty sure that today we kill patients and we don't take enough burden from our patients and from mankind because we don't fully 
exploit the possibilities we have. Yeah. If you look at a regular clinical practice or office today, um, uh, you could basically go to, I think Freud was, was buried in London. You could basically dig out Freud and, and put him to any psychiatry or psychotherapist office. He would be able to work the way he did 100 years ago straight away. There's no difference at all. Yeah. There's almost no apps, no, no data, um, you know, especially in bipolar um, disorders. It's so vital to not only um, to see depression early on. It's, it's so much more important to, to get the signs for a, a manic episode. And that's where you need data because, you know, do you see all of a sudden that somebody is logging himself into Amazon and ordering tons of, of different things at once or ordering three cars in three different colors? Yeah. And that's something which is so much more sensitive and sensible than than saying okay after three weeks when you know the, the first guy is knocking on the door and say well you cannot pay your credits that the wife says well he might have have an, uh, a manic episode yeah the, the data is is so so um it's also telling so much about us which we don't what we actually don't want to know it's it's very interesting on facebook you have crawlers which can actually see if a depression is getting worse just by the way and what you post yeah. The question is, do you want to allow a crawler or any bot to, to be running on your Facebook profile? That's a question you have to answer yourself in the very beginning. And just to bring that back to our current situation of COVID, what if an algorithm can just by the flattering in your voice or the posts that you make or the pictures that you took with people that were diagnosed with COVID uh, infection, if this could be predicted that me, Thomas, does have COVID, um, is it ethically viable in these days and and continuously that an algorithm uh, directly sends a signal to my health insurance to the doctor to to my employer or, or whatever just lock me down effectively uh, right and uh, uh, is, uh, is that ethical you know the thing with ethics is that it's always a perspective of the uh, civilization or community you're living in the ancient romans had very different ethics than we have today so um, back then things were considered normal, where we today would say that's absolutely unnormal yeah, and, and even despicable. Mm. With such a major global event, it's, I mean, it's not on a local basis, with, with such a global event, which I'm pretty sure that most people will say, well, we don't want to repeat that. Mm -hmm. uh, we will certainly see changes uh, in the way we interact and in the way um, our personal freedom will, will affect us, starting uh, by... Very simply put, um, if you want to travel to a different country, um, they will in the future they'll probably have very strict algorithms or, or procedures running on you um, to see if you are a threat to their community by bringing a disease which they don't want to have. Yeah, very true. Um, like traveling as freely as we did right now, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we won't be be as free as we were just like half a year ago. True. If you even see that the states huh? in, in the United States, you can't even travel freely within your own country. In Germany, we can't do that. From Hamburg, I'm not able to travel north because the, the, the states north of Hamburg, north and northeast, they don't let me in. It's, it's amazing. I'm basically trapped in my town and the only way I can go is south. And I'm not even supposed to do that. So, and, and we fully accept it because we say, well, it's for greater good. Yeah. I think that the perspective and the ethics for our community and greater good will change to some extent. Um, the problem is that it's a give and take. There won't be like a um, dystopia like, uh, you know, you see in, in, in so many movies where everything will be fully controlled. But I think that we will step 
huge steps further to to more control. And we we need to evolve our thinking and and perspective on what's ethical and unethical and where the worth lies when it comes to freedom to travel, economy, downturn or upturn, um, health measures, what's it worth in the end, right? And, and where do we apply which standards to it? And may I just come back to, to you commenting on, it's a good question to ask how your colleagues uh, treating the patients that you further empower by all the, the YouTube videos and the TV shows that you're, that you're broadcasting. If we take that even a step further now, where we will live um, in, in a world continuously of digital helpers, let's call it, uh, where you know about yourself as a patient uh, in kind of a scenario, the patient knows him or herself now uh, and, and sees, sees it probably even way clearer than the doctor itself. How will this eventually change the role of the doctors that all of us having undergone medical school will, will have to adapt to in future? How do you see that changing? Well, there's, I mean, there's a positive and a negative uh, scenario. The negative would be that we are even documenting more and that we are um, having to pass on more information to public uh, organizations and institutions which are restricting humans. Um, that would be the bad outcome. Mm -hmm. The positive outcome, um, and which I'm believing in, is because the, at least the, the you know, um, patients start uh, seeing themselves as customers in a way and, and mm -hmm. are able to, to vote with their feet, as you say. And so they, they actually go to the doctors which they are more comfortable or most comfortable with, is um, that the doctor is becoming more gatekeeper where you say, well, you know, hey, doctor, this is my data. Um, I'm, I'm comfortable with these algorithms or digital helpers running my stuff. And um, please, you know, get in touch whenever uh, the red light is beeping on your screen. Yeah. That's how I would love to see ourselves as physicians of the future. Where you actually really, you know, you are helping people when they need you and not when you order them to come in just to get a regular check, which is fully random. Uh, as I said in the video, you know, prior to this, please come back in six weeks. I don't have any clue how, how you know, where the six weeks come from. But if you say, you know, please have this, this digital helper running on you for the next six months to, to get everything sorted, we can just uh, disenable it afterwards uh, everything, when everything is fine again. Mm. But in this time, um, your helper will get in touch with me when the helper thinks something is wrong. And when you feel something is wrong, you know, get in touch with, with me whenever you like. And then your doctor's daily routine would look totally different. You wouldn't see 80 patients, like eight zero patients um, in a 10-minute in a slot or six-minute slot. Mm -hmm. uh, during the day, you would start your day with some regular patients, and then you would see what the algorithm gets to you. Yeah. And, and whenever the algorithm feels like you know, it's too much, then it will tell you, well, you know, you shouldn't allow any more patients into your office or into your, into your database because, you know, you're at the limit of your capacity. That would be beautiful. Yeah. And that's also something I see in young doctors, the way they would like to work much more than, you know, saying, oh, I have... 2,000 patients every quarter uh, and, and I'm so good and, you know, nobody else is seeing my patients. Doctors are still very jealous on each other and they don't like to send a patient somewhere else um, because, you know, then somebody else might get paid for it. So also the whole reimbursement has to change. Yeah. You cannot just pay for the performance. And, and uh, you, you raise a point. I, this is also uh, what straight came to my mind. I mean, we need to significantly reimagine and redo uh, how we are reimbursing uh, everything in healthcare, which is disease-led and care-led rather than uh, on an as-needed basis. Uh, um, and uh, we, we would need to redo this dramatically. Uh, and that, that takes time, I can only assume. 
So given that and also the complexity of medicine and, and the data behind that currently exponential growth is the new normal in these type of, of days, people are pledging for the usage of things like AI and machine learning and natural language processing and, and the like on that uh, patient level data. In your perspective, how ready uh, and that is Germany, but not only Germany. How ready are we as, as healthcare professionals to rely on these self-learning machines and algorithms kind of taking over a doctor's responsibility? Are we prepared for that uh, from a technology point of view, but also from a cultural standpoint? What, what's your perspective on that, Johannes? I think that's a very important question, um, which uh, you can also answer just by looking to yourself I mean, if, if you look to your personal changes and the way you th look at things um, and the whole you know, like uh, digitization process, sometimes you're more comfortable, sometimes you're less comfortable. If you look at the doctor who has been running his little medical practice, maybe with one other doctor and a little bit of staff for 40 years, you certainly cannot expect them to be like totally thrilled and say, yeah, let's do all this digital stuff. And, you know, the, it's like a clockwork, which you shouldn't disrupt too heavily. Uh, cultural change is always something which needs time and generations mm -hmm. to fulfill. And um, uh, certainly the pandemic right now is accelerating things. But, uh, you know, we need time to some extent. It's, it's not something which you can just uh, jump ahead. What I like is the leapfrogging perspective or uh, assumption that, you know, we are so highly technologized that in, in, in so many ways that, you know, a new way of doing things also means that you have to get rid of old things. Yeah. Just take the telephone in, in the South African townships. From no telephone, they jumped directly to cell phone. Um, there was no need at all to get through the hassle of, of pulling landlines through there. Mm -hmm. And that's also something you see in China. And the projects I was doing there, um, I was amazed by the tremendous effort they put into it and by the huge leaps they took forward. Well, that's because. You know, in rural China, there is not too much medicine, yeah. which is comparable to urban China. So it's it's always a perspective on, you know, what do you have to sacrifice? And don't try to ask doctors to give away too much, which has been working very well for many decades. But also never, you know, let them dictate that everything will still run as it always has been. Yeah. And thanks very much, Johannes, for that perspective on the change needed, especially in well-established healthcare systems that we are living in. I don't know what for you and happy for you to share that, what your key takeaways for today were. But two things really struck me in, in, in our very rich conversation that we pleasantly had is that data and data insights and algorithms behind and technology behind that is of utmost important going forward, but it's not everything. We need to have humans we can trust uh, handling and, and interpreting and believing that data so we can believe someone because it's, it's just too hard to believe uh, just a machine of, of saying yes or no. And the second thing is that to accommodate for that, it's not only the technology um, that needs to change, it's also the culture of healthcare professionals needing to adapt to this new normal. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, uh, the baby I'm rocking all the time on my arm just woke up, so she's giving her point as well. Um, that's, the, that's, why hear, that's why you hear me he, uh, breathing heavily because I'm doing squats to imitate the rocking board. Anyway, um, no, I, I think nice. that's absolutely true. It's um, What I'm really looking forward to is putting what we've learned before and the possibilities we have seen before, which haven't been applied, put to the need we see right now due to the crisis to, to, to get actually this as a combination going to, to work on future projects and really you know change things for the better. 
and I always had great joy in working with huge, you know, all the big consultancies or also smaller consultancies on international projects. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty confident that we'll see solutions being applied not only to a single market, but to, you know, more markets and, and to see more interaction and, and sharing data. But right now, the most important thing is that we get as healthy as possible uh, through these hard times. Yeah, and get back to normal eventually at some point. Johannes, thanks very much for the time and the effort you took. And I know it's uh, you squeezed everything into a, a very tight schedule here and, and sharing openly your perspectives on COVID, but also more broadly on, on the future of healthcare and what that will look like. So big, big thank you from my end. No, absolutely. No worries. Uh, it was my pleasure as well. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in person someday or the other. Yeah, same here. We make that happen. Yeah? Uh, thanks yeah, very much, yeah. Johannes, and, and have and a great day. all the best day. for all the listeners. All right, yeah. take care. Thank Bye. you, take care. Bye. Bye. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening in today's episode. If there is any further information that you want to dig into, please be invited to go to our website and download the latest thinking around the future of healthcare. With regard to our next episode, I'm very much looking forward to speaking to the CEO and founder of one of the, let's say, hottest digital health startups these days, and to get his perspective on the potentials of AI algorithms and patent recognition with regard to COVID-19, but also more broadly. With that said, I wish you a healthy and sunny day and tune in next time. Thank you and bye-bye. Strategy and strategy made real.